0: I feel that I should explain what happened this past Sunday. Apparently, God felt that Micah had become too complacent. (laughs) He's used to getting enough warning in advance that he has time to prepare. And so God decided that he needed no warning at all and that he should suddenly just be standing here and... uh, now, I'm thinking he probably went home, printed out his notes, reviews them regularly <laughs> so that he will not be caught unawares next time. Thank you all for your concern over me. I have no problems that cannot be solved by a new body. And so once that happens, I'm good. So. I am in Isaiah 41. Turn there if you would. I hope you remember everything that we learned last week from Isaiah 40. This is God defending himself. On the subject of Yahweh, if you want a subject matter expert, that expert would be Yahweh. And he is talking about himself. He is telling us what he is like. And he is comparing himself to everyone else and posing impossible comparisons in order to say, I'm the only one who can do this. You can't do it. In chapter 41, he's also going to include the idols that men make and mock those idols and challenge them to do what he does. I am a great fan of prophecy. A full quarter of the Bible is prophecy, And I'm not afraid to look at and teach the prophecy that is in the Bible because God uses his ability to prophesy as the evidence of who he is, that he is unique, that he is the only one who can declare the future in advance. And he's going to say that again in this chapter. So God himself uses his own prophecy as evidence of his unique sovereign ability. And that's why I like prophecy. Not so that I can figure out what's going to happen next week, but because I agree with God that this is one of the unique characteristics of God. There is no other respected religious literature in the whole world and in the history of the world that engages in prophecy the way that the Bible does. And that is because prophecy is dangerous. You can check it. If you're the leader of a false religion and you start prophesying stuff and that stuff doesn't happen, it becomes obvious very quickly that you are not the ruler of the world. Mm -hmm. So God holds out his prophetic ability as evidence that he is the only God who is. But then he's going to up the ante here and say he's also the God who has always acted like that who can also declare the past and tell you not only the past and what happened in the past, but why it happened. So he is indeed the beginning and the end. He is the beginning of all creation. He is the end of all creation, and he's in charge of everything between the beginning and the end. So at the beginning of chapter 41, he calls the peoples of the earth to come reason with him. Let's have a conversation. And as you go on into this chapter, you'll see that he is saying, bring your evidence. Make your case. Show me what you got. Because I can show you what I got. Mm. And what I've got is unlike anything you've got. So bring your idols. Bring your best estimates. Bring your self-defense. Bring everything you got, and let's compare it to what I've got. And he throws that out in front of the whole world. In fact, chapter 41 starts with the word in the NASB. It says, coastlands, listen to me, uh, in the King James, I do believe it'll say islands. The reason for that is, if you're living in Jerusalem, if you're there in the Middle East, the furthest west that you know, once you go past Greece, once you go past Italy, once you get to, like, Spain, Portugal, and then start heading north, France, the coast of France, there are then the islands that are historically known as the Tin Islands. We know them today as the British Islands. And their chief trading commodity for many years, even back into these days, was tin. Those distant coasts going up the western side of Portugal, Spain, France, and then the islands out in the sea, the British islands, that's as far west as the known world went. And so if you were trying to say everybody everywhere, you would say all the way out to the coast, all the way out to the coastland, and that's why some translations say out to the islands. And so as God is talking about the peoples in the known world They're talking about out to the coastlands and then eastward into the areas of Assyria and Babylon and out into those empires. That's the known world. Basically, the Roman Empire becomes the known world. So here's God challenging the known world Mm. and saying, okay, coastlands, okay, islands, listen to me. In silence. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to put a challenge in front of you. Pay attention. Don't argue with me. Listen to what I tell you. Let the people gain new strength. In other words, let them prepare themselves. It's very much like God saying to Job, quit you like a man. I'm going to demand of you and you're going to answer me. He's doing this now to the coastlands, to the islands, to all the peoples of the earth, to the known world. Let the people stand up, gain strength, let them come forward, and then let them speak. First, listen to me, listen to my instructions, listen to my challenge. Gather yourselves up, gain your strength, and then come defend yourself to me. Let them come forward and let them speak, and let them come together for judgment. Now, that does not mean like judging the saved and the lost. What he means is, I'll make my case, you make your case, and we'll judge between the two. And we'll see who actually has the better case here, the same way that a court would judge between the two arguments. Both the the defense and the uh, accusatory side both make their best argument, and the judge judges. Well, God is saying, let's do that. You make your case, I'll make my case, Let's see who really knows what they're talking about. Okay, first challenge, verse 2. Who has aroused one from the east whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? This is probably a reference to Cyrus, who just a few chapters from now, Isaiah is going to name by name. He's the one from the east who is going to allow the children of Israel after their 70 years in Babylon to return, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. That is probably who this is a reference to. But again, this is God speaking in the future tense and saying, I'm in such control of world history. I'm going to call this one from the east, someone you don't know yet. I'm the one who's going to arouse him. And then make him sit at my feet and do my bidding. The phrase, I call him in righteousness, doesn't mean that he's going to be righteous. It means that God is righteous in what he's doing through this one he's calling. Because in his righteousness, God is going to keep his promises and his faithfulness to Israel, and he's going to restore Israel just like the prophets have promised. So in God's own righteousness, He has called this one from the east. Now he's going to describe what he's going to do with this one from the east. And you'll see some of the evidence for why I believe this is a reference to Cyrus. He delivers up nations before him. That's God saying, I deliver up the nations, the Gentiles. I deliver them up before this king that I have called. And I subdue kings in front of him. And he, that one that I call, is going to make those kings like dust with his sword, as wind-driven chaff with his bow. In other words, he's going to go out to conquer, and he's going to conquer very, very successfully. Now, how can God make this kind of claim? We have to remember back in chapter 40 that he has already said that all the rulers of the earth, this is verse 23 of chapter 40, it is God who reduces the rulers of the earth down to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless so that they haven't been planted or sown. Their stock doesn't take root, and he blows on them, and they wither. And all the nations of the earth, we read last week, are a drop in the bucket to him. So God is in complete control of the nations, even the Gentile nations. Therefore, he can lift up a Gentile king like Cyrus and then make the other kings of the earth fall before him, And then like wind-driven chaff, just blow them away. So God has already told us that he's the one who is empowering it, but then he gives the result of that almighty power to whoever he wants. This is an absolutely sovereign God who is not just sovereign within Israel, not just sovereign within the church. But he's sovereign in all of his creation and even people who don't know him. Later when he describes Cyrus, he's going to keep saying, though you don't know me, but I'm still going to raise you up and I'm still going to make you a great king. But you don't know me. So God is again announcing his complete control of human history and saying in advance that he's going to raise up a king who's going to do all these things. He pursues them, says verse 3. And yet he passes on in safety. No one's going to kill him, but he's going to kill wantonly. By the way, or by a way, that he had not been traversing with his feet. In other words, he's going to conquer areas where he's never even been before. He's going to conquer so successfully. Okay, so now, since he's laid out what's going to happen... Verse 4 poses the question. Remember, he's discussing with the nations of the earth. You make your case, I'll make mine. So verse 4, who has performed and accomplished this? Who has called forth the generations from the beginning? So not only did he just predict the future, but he just took credit for the past. And He said, from every generation of human beings on planet earth, I called it. I called forth. I determined it. I decided what was going to be done. And I've told you now what I'm going to do in the future. What do you got? Make your case. Because I'm the one who does all this. Then in verse 5, he returns to talking about this one from the east who he is going to cause to conquer nations. The coastlands are going to hear about it. They've seen what he has done, and they're going to be afraid. The ends of the earth, that's the distances, are going to tremble. They have drawn near, and they have come. In other words, those armies of Cyrus, of the Medo-Persians who conquer in the Middle East, Those nations are going to conquer wherever they want to go, even places where they've never tread before, even places they haven't seen before, and it's going to cause all the nations of the area to fear and to tremble, knowing that that army is coming and advancing. So what are they going to do? Verse 6 says, each one is going to try to help his neighbor. The nations are going to start making deals with each other. Okay, if we band together, maybe we can fight this guy. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. And then what do they do? They turn to their false gods. They decide to make themselves idols. Because after all, whoever the god is that is driving this one from the east seems very powerful. So we need not only to make deals and agreements and pacts between ourselves. We need to make sure that we have gods of our own who can fight for us. Verse 7. So the craftsman encouraged the smelter, and he who smooths the metal with a hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. Okay, so he builds it. He smelts it. He hammers it out. He beats it with an anvil. It's strong. It's metal. It's a metallic God that they are building. And then they solder it all together and they announce it is good. And then in a fit of absolute irony, God says, then they fasten it with nails so it doesn't fall over. (laughs) Look at this God we have built. This is a good, strong God. It's a well-built God. We've covered it with gold and silver. We've really made it a magnificent God, the work of our own hands. And oh yeah, it can't move, it can't think, and if we don't nail it down, it might fall over. That's not a God. And so Yahweh takes the time to point it out, that you go through all that effort, you go through all that work, and then you have to admit it's not alive by the very fact that you have to nail it down. Or else, the NASB says, it will totter which means it will fall over. And then he turns his attention in verse 8 to Israel. Now I'm going to take a moment and kind of emphasize the language that is used here. Because again, and I know I'm going to sound like a broken record on this, there is a very common theology out there that says God is done with Israel. So let's see if that theology, the same way that God is saying, okay, I'll make my case, you make your case. Let's see which one stands. I'm going to do the same thing here for the folks who say God is done with Israel. Okay, that's your case. Let's see if it can stand against the word of God, because God's about to make his case where Israel is concerned. But you, Israel, number one, he calls them My servant. Okay, you are the ones who serve me. Then he calls them Jacob. We know Jacob is the family name for national Israel. Jacob had his name changed to Israel and had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. So not only does God refer to him as Israel, the one who's wrestled with God and prince who has power with God, but then he also reminds him, you are Jacob. You are heel catcher. You are a supplanter. In a few verses, God is going to call them, Jacob, you worm. So God keeps reminding them who they are, even as God says, I'm your God. I'm going to take care of you. Not that you deserve it, because you are Jacob, and you are a worm, and you are incapable. But for my own namesake, for my own reputation, for the sake of my own faithfulness, I'm going to take care of you. But you, Israel my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. That's the language of election. Now, if God has taken the time to refer to national Israel as his elect, and then in the New Testament, we read that the church is made up of people Jew and Gentile who God elected. What's the difference? Because when we read about the church being elect, we really like it. We say, yeah, God chose me before the foundation of the world. He elected me, therefore I can't fall. Therefore I'm secure. Therefore it's going to be all right with me eternally because God chose me. Right here it says he chose Israel. And there's nowhere in the Bible, I'd like to put a fine point on this, underline it, big red font. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says God unelected Israel. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says God changed his mind. Instead, what it says is, Israel, you worm, you Jacob, you heel catcher. And yet he's taking the time to say, but I chose you. You're still mine. So if you're going to say that God has permanently done away with national Israel, how do you defend that God is going to be faithful to the church? or to you individually when it's the exact same God using the exact same language the exact same grace being given to the exact same sinners who don't deserve that grace I get very tired of hearing people within the church say that God has abandoned Israel you ask them why and they say well because they broke God's law so therefore they don't deserve it as if you deserve it you don't deserve it either So, therefore, God can, if he wants to, and apparently he does, if he wants to say, Israel's mine, I chose them, that's the end of that story, then you're very hard-pressed to find proof, to find actual biblical evidence to say that God has abandoned his promises to Israel. They don't exist anywhere in the Bible. They just exist in man-made systems and theology that are not biblically composed Okay, so, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. Now, really specific, descendant of Abraham, my friend. Is he talking about the church here? No. No, he's talking about national Israel. He's being very clear. By the way, the church is never referred to as Jacob. Is that worth pointing out? But Israel, national Israel, God constantly reminds them that they are Jacob. So God is talking here to national Israel, the very people that Isaiah is prophesying to. You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. You, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called you from the remotest parts of it. There are some commentaries that will tell you that that is a reference to God first calling Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and bringing him to the land of Canaan and then promising them all that land. More likely, since this is in the context of God saying what the future is going to be, and that he's going to raise up Cyrus, and that Cyrus, through God's righteousness, is going to allow Israel to come back and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls, probably that is what God is referring to here, that is going to drive them out of their land. During the Assyrian captivity, he has scattered the ten northern tribes, And he has promised over and over and over again that though he has driven them to the ends of the earth, that he's going to gather them from the ends of the earth and bring them back to their land. So God is clearly speaking here in my way of thinking. He's speaking here prophetically and eschatologically that that is the evidence that God is for Israel. The very fact that he drove them out of their land, but will regather them again and can say that with great purpose and great fortitude because he's the all-powerful one who's going to do it but you Israel my servant Jacob whom I have chosen descendant of Abraham my friend you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and I have said to you you are my servant I have chosen you and not rejected you What does that do to the theology of God rejected Israel? God not only called them Jacob, and he's about to call them a worm, and he's about to tell them how unfaithful they are. In that context, he says, but I called you, and I haven't rejected you. (coughs) Do not fear, says verse 10, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look around you, because I am your God. In other words, don't look at the surrounding nations, don't look at their gods, don't look at the fact that they may be threatening you, that they may look like warlike people. Don't be afraid of what's going on in the world. I think I could apply that to this very moment. (laughs) Don't be afraid of what's going on in the world because I am your God. And if you know that the sovereign God is on your side, you don't have to fear what's going on in the world. But here is God saying, I chose you, Israel. I have not rejected you, Israel. Therefore, when you get scattered, therefore, when you're taken away to Babylon, therefore, when you're taken away to Assyria, know that I have promised to regather you, bring you back to your own land. And the very God who is the God of Israel, the one who can tell the future in advance, the all powerful God is the one who promises you that he's going to do all this for you. So therefore, don't be afraid you just happen to be right in the middle of me doing the stuff that I promised you I'm going to do do not fear for I am with you do not anxiously look about you for I am your God I will strengthen you surely I will help you and surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You are Jacob, you are a worm, you are a sinner, you are unfaithful, you are rebellious. Therefore, the answer to you can't be you. The answer to your troubles, to your problems, has to be God. And here he says, and it is, I'll help you. I'll uphold you. I will provide for you. Hi. Jim here. How are you? Sorry for the interruption. It was at this exact point last night that the digital audio card on which we record these lessons reached its maximum capacity. It was full and so it stopped recording. But rather than allow the internet audience to just not hear the end of the lesson, I decided to sit down here at my kitchen table and record the rest of this lesson. We got as far as Isaiah 41, verse 10, which says, well, you just heard it. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So that is a promise that God has made to Israel at this point. The very same Israel who he identified earlier in the chapter as being the particular people who are also called Jacob, who are also the descendants of Abraham, those that he particularly chose, and those that he refers to as my servant. That all takes us to verse 11. Behold, all these who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing, and they will perish. So, as part of God's promise to protect, reassemble, establish Israel, he reaches out into the future and says to them not to be afraid not to look around at the nations around them anxiously, worrying that their enemies are going to finally overtake them, because it is God who is going to defend them against their enemies, and all those who are angered at you are going to be shamed and dishonored. And those who contend with you will be as nothing, and they're all going to perish. They're all going to be done away with. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but you will not find them. And those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. So again, keeping the larger context in mind, here is God defending himself, declaring his singularity, declaring that he is the only God who can accomplish these things, and that he is going to accomplish these things on behalf of Israel. Now, at this particular moment in time and history, we cannot say that that's true of Israel. There are still plenty of people in the Middle East who are determined to push Israel into the sea or just blow them off the face of the map entirely. And yet God has promised them that those who seek to quarrel with them, that's verse 12, Those who quarrel with them, you're going to look for them, you're going to seek them, and you're not going to find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing. They will be non-existent. So God is predicting a time when in reestablishing Israel, when settling the kingdom of Israel, these enemies that they are so fearful of are going to be completely done away with. Part of how God talks, because God is in charge of eternity, part of how God talks is long-term. He looks down the plan of future that has not yet happened. He declares the end from the beginning. And he has declared what he is ultimately going to do for Israel. And this is all part and parcel of God establishing who he is, defending himself, and comparing himself to all the other gods, to all the other religions, to all the other objects of worship, and pointing out that he's the only one. He's the only one that can do this. And when he does it, he expects people to recognize, oh, that must be the God of Israel, because no one else could pull off something like this. And so in verse 13, he says, for I am the Lord your God. Who upholds your right hand, who says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. A few moments ago, I heard myself use the phrase, well, last night, I heard myself use the phrase, the solution to Israel's problem, because of their sin, because of their rebellion, because of their humanity and incapability. The solution to their problem simply cannot be them. Here is God saying it again. Do not fear, I will help you. And it's a really, really vital, important theological point to understand. Soteriologically speaking, when it comes to questions of salvation when it comes to questions of redemption, when it comes to questions of eternity, you, as an individual sinner, you, the individual human, cannot be the solution to your problem. I mean, you are the problem, and so you cannot solve your problem. God has to solve your problem, and that is everything we believe about God's Sovereign, monergistic work. There are things that no one else can do except He Himself. And He's perfectly willing, by His grace, by His kindness, to be the redeeming God. In a moment, He's going to say that He is the Redeemer of Israel. He's going to self identify as the Redeemer of Israel because Israel cannot help themselves. And you, cannot help yourself. The problem with you is not solved by you. And likewise, the problem with Israel, which is a very serious, very deep problem, is not going to be solved by Israel. It's going to be solved by God, and He promised to solve it. By the time we reach the end of this chapter, God is going to explain that the problem with the nations all the way out to the coastlands, the problems with the world at large can't be solved by the world at large. It doesn't matter how many men, how many nations get together and start making pacts, start making agreements, start making contracts with each other or helping one another or attempting to resolve each other's problems, the problems that the world encounters cannot be solved by the world. The world is not the solution to the world's problems. Politics aren't going to solve it. The courts are not going to solve it. Any true detrimental problem that exists in the world cannot be solved by the very people who created those problems. Only God is going to be able to solve those problems and the world's problems are only going to be solved when the Prince of Peace comes back to rule with his rod of iron. Anyway, verse 13 says, I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. And then he refers to Jacob who is Israel, as merely a worm. So he's not saying, I'm going to help you, I'm going to save you, because you're the good ones, you're the righteous ones, you're the holy ones, you're the ones who are performing up to snuff. Instead, he says, you are a worm, Jacob. But because I chose you, because you belong to me, and because I'm faithful to my word, I'm going to save you. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. Now it's very clear who he's talking about. By the way, this is another place where it's impossible to say that he is talking in some way to the church when he says the word Israel. Because he never refers to the church as Jacob. He never refers to the church as you worm, even though I think that would be an apt description of so much of the church world. But do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you. There is the declaration of everything I've been trying to elucidate, that the solution to Israel's problems cannot be Israel. Just like the solution to you cannot be you. It has to be God intervening and doing the necessary actions, the necessary work to accomplish the redemption of his people. And now he says so. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer, the one who is going to solve your problem, the one who is going to pay for you, the one who is going to redeem you, is Kadesh Yisrael. He is the Holy One of Israel. That's a proper name that God gives himself. I am the Holy One of Israel, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. And that promise is made specifically to the worm Jacob, the man of Israel, by the Holy One of Israel. I just don't know how much more exacting the language needs to be for us to understand that it is God's intention to redeem national Israel, to reestablish them. Now, when we get to chapter 42, we will find out the methodology by which God is going to redeem them and redeem us and redeem all his people. He's going to do it through his servant, whom he upholds the chosen one in whom his soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he's going to bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah is introducing the Messiah, introducing Christ into the conversation. It is through Christ that God is going to establish all these things that he has promised, including being the redeemer of Israel. He is going to send his son, the Messiah of Israel to be the Redeemer of Israel. These things all fit together in a rather obvious fashion when you just read what the text actually says. Okay, back to chapter 41, verse 14. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. And then beyond just redeeming them, God now declares that the same way that he has used Gentile nations in order to correct erring Israel, when he redeems them, when he establishes them, he is going to use them as his weapon of choice in defeating and correcting these foreign Gentile godless nations. So, starting at verse 15, it says, Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges, so it cuts both ways. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them. as probably a reference to the kingdoms of this world, the mountains. And you are going to make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them And the wind will carry them away. You can see now why God said, don't worry about those who are angry at you or those who contend with you because they're going to be like nothing. They're going to perish. You're going to look for them and you're not going to be able to find them because they're nothing. They're non-existent. He says Israel is going to winnow them. The wind is going to carry them away. The storm will scatter them. But you, Israel... You will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in Kodesh Yisrael, the Holy One of Israel. So there's a huge contrast here. The contrast is between the enemy nations who God is going to destroy utterly and Israel, who God is going to be faithful to, who he is going to reestablish, who he is going to bring to himself and this is all the language of the new covenant that you find in Jeremiah 31. The promise that within Israel and within Judah, remembering that the covenant in Jeremiah 31, that new covenant is made with the same people that the old covenant is made with. The language in Jeremiah is very specific. It's to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. And God says, No one is going to have to teach each other or say, know the Lord, because they're all going to know me from the greatest to the least. God is going to take out their stony heart. He's going to give them a heart of flesh. He's going to take away their blindness. He's going to take away their stopped-up ears. He's going to give them the ability to understand himself because, after all, he is their redeemer. He is going to do absolutely everything necessary in a monergistic fashion in order to accomplish what he has declared from the very beginning. And remember, contextually, this is about God saying, I'm the only one who can do this. I'm going to do away with your enemies, but as for you... You're going to rejoice in the Lord. That is not the current state of Israel, even to this day. But God has promised them, and it's a rock-solid promise. Or else you have to say that the Bible is lying somehow. It's a rock-solid promise that God is going to not only redeem Israel, but that they will rejoice in him. They will glory over him. They are going to worship him in spirit and in truth because he is the Holy One of Israel. Now, here in America, here in Smyrna, Tennessee, in the 21st century, we don't think about the necessity of water the way people living in a desert region in the Middle East did. If they don't get sufficient rain, if they don't get sufficient water, then the rivers are going to dry up, the streams are going to dry up. It's going to be very difficult to find living water, healthy water, water that's not bitter or poisoned in some way. So now God is going to explain his faithfulness to Israel in terms of water, which is going to resonate with them much more than it resonates with us right here, right now. Starting at verse 17, The afflicted and the needy are seeking water, but there is none. Their tongue is parched with thirst. Okay, so Israel, as they go through these various incursions by their enemies, are likened to people who are so thirsty, so anxious for water, that they're parched. God, who is their deliverer, God, who is their redeemer, is going to supply them not just with some water, Not just a drop on their tongue, but overflowing water, ample water. In fact, you can see why, in the language we're about to read, why Jesus would compare himself and the flowing of the Spirit to water, living water, streams of living water pouring through and out of his people. Here's what he says. The afflicted and the needy are seeking water, but there is none. And their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. Again, this is God saying, Can you do this? Can you bring water to an entire nation? Could you bring water out of a rock because your thirsty people are out there wandering in the desert? I can do that. I, the God of Israel, I can do that. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I want to kind of emphasize and underline that particular phrase. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. Because there are, as I mentioned earlier, last night, there are theologies out there that say that God is done with Israel. And yet here is the plain declaration from God where he is saying, I will not forsake them. These are plain declarations like Jeremiah. I just mentioned Jeremiah 31 and the promise of the new covenant that's coming to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. At the conclusion of the promise of a new covenant, Thus says the Lord, this is Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name, the Lord who's in charge of everyone and everything. If this fixed order departs from before me, Sun, moon, stars, waves, if all of that departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off the offspring of Israel For all that they have done, declares the Lord. So, whether it's Isaiah, whether it's Jeremiah, I keep using the phrase, all the prophets speak with one voice. They all say the same thing, which is despite Israel being a worm, despite the fact that they are Jacob, the heel catcher, the supplanter, and God keeps reminding them of that, despite the fact that they are incapable of saving themselves, God keeps saying, I'm your solution. I'm your Redeemer. I'm the Holy One of Israel. I am the God of Israel. Therefore, I'm going to give you ample supply of everything you need. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you. And not just a little bit. when their tongue is parched, the Lord will answer them himself, And the God of Israel will say to them, I will not forsake you. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land foundations of water. I will put the cedars in the wilderness, the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. And I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress In other words, God is saying, I'm going to make the desert area bloom. There's going to be so much water that not only is it going to be adequate for your thirst to solve your problem, but it is also going to be adequate water for all the trees, for the forests that are going to grow up, for all the greenery that I'm going to bring to Israel as I reestablish them and as I make their land a land of milk and honey Now, why is he going to do all that? Why does he declare in advance that he's going to do all that? Verse 20 answers that question. So that they may see and recognize and consider, think about it, and gain insight as well. They're going to gain understanding as a result of God doing all that, that the hand of the Lord has done this. It is Kadesh Yisrael... It is the Holy One of Israel who has created it. So God is going to do all this for Israel, not because Israel deserves it. And that is just such an important, vital point. So often when people talk about God being finished with Israel, they say it's because Israel has broken the law and therefore they don't deserve it. But that's the whole point. No one deserves it. We're all sinners. There's none that stirs himself to seek after God. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. There's nobody good. There's nobody that deserves it. And the same God that we are resting in to preserve us, to care for us, to provide for us, to save us, to redeem us, to establish us, is the same God who has promised to do all that for Israel. And it is just simply impossible, biblically speaking, to separate Israel from those promises because they're the ones who have the promises. We, Gentile believers, get grafted in to their promises via their Redeemer, their Holy One of Israel, their Messiah. We are just simply the recipients of grace that is promised to Israel. It really is just that simple, and it's what the Bible just keeps saying over and over. So God is going to reestablish Israel, plant them in their own land, bring them back from the distances where he has scattered them, make them a fruitful country, give them ample water supply, and he's going to do all this so that when they think about it, when they consider it, when they look at the circumstances, they're forced to say, I know who did this. This has to be the God of Israel. This has to be the Holy One of Israel who accomplished all this because this is God entering into human history to do what only God can do so that he can demonstrate that there's no one like him. Verse 21 now, he turns his attention to all the humans of all the coastlands of all the islands and all their gods collectively. They're gods that are nailed down to perches, who can't move, who can't think, who can't act. And he challenges them in verse 21 and says, present your case, says the Lord. I mean, he's presented his. He's got a pretty rock-solid case for the control of human history. And really, really interestingly, the explanation of human history, why human history makes sense and why he does the things that he does, and he declares the future. So what do you got? Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the King of Jacob says. Another bit of nomenclature that God assigns to himself. Are you getting a feel for this? He calls himself the Holy One of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel. Now he is the King of Jacob. And again, the church is never called Jacob. He is the King of national Israel. And since he is the only God that is, the God who declares, I am because I am, he says, all right, make your best case bring it forward. Show me what you got. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. All these gods of metal, all these gods who have to be nailed to a chunk of wood or else they would fall over. Let them bring forth and declare because that's what God does. God brings forth and declares the future, the history, the past, So let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, the ones that have already occurred, as for the former events, declare what they were so that we may consider them and know their outcome and announce to us what is coming. God says, not only can I tell you what the history of the world is, I can tell you why that's the history of the world. I can declare the outcome of it, the result of it. Why am I doing what I'm doing at this very moment? So now you foreign gods, do that. (laughs) What do you got? Go ahead, impress me. Show me what you got. Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are gods. Do something. Tell us the future. Tell us the history. Prove to us that you are gods because Yahweh does prove that he is in fact the only existent God. He lays out his proof. He lays out his evidence. And so he says to the foreign gods who are not gods, do this. Declare the way that I declare but then he really breaks it down. If you're nailed to a chunk of wood, God says, just do something. Prove to us that you are alive, that you exist, that you're thinking, that you're rational, that you're cogent, and that you're not just a chunk of metal nailed to a piece of wood. Declare the things that are going to come afterwards, says verse 23. That we may know that you are God's. Indeed, do good or evil. That we may anxiously look about us in fear together. That's God's way of saying, do something. Do good, do evil, do something. You're an inanimate object that is only held upright by the fact that they nailed you there. Do something. Prove that you are God's. And since you can't declare the future, since you can't declare the past, just say something. Do something. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together, so that we can reverence you, so that we can admit that you're a god. Just just prove it. Just do something. And then God declares in verse 24, Behold, you're of no account. Your work amounts to nothing. And he who chooses you is an abomination. He who chooses you will fall under my judgment. And rightly so, because here is the God who is God. Here is the God who is the righteous one, the holy one, the redeemer of Israel, declaring to the whole world, your gods are nothing, and if you think they're something, if you worship before them, if you do obeisance and honor these gods, why then do you make them with your own hand? Why are they man-made? Why are they nailed down? Why can they not move? They can't think. They can't do anything. They can't literally speak, think, do anything. And so if you choose that inanimate object over the living God, you are an abomination to the living God because you do not honor, cherish, understand the righteousness, the holiness, the sovereignty, the livingness of the God who is. And you have chosen for yourself things that are not. Behold, you gods are of no account. Your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Okay, so now God is going to reach into the past the same way that he reached into the future and said what was coming up and how he was going to arouse one from the east Now he takes the time to declare what has already happened, that he has already brought down someone from the north. This is most likely a reference to the Assyrian captivity, how the Assyrians came down from the north of Israel and how they have attacked the northern ten tribes and taken them into captivity. And yet God is going to declare that he did all that, that he did it on purpose, that he knows what he's doing And that all the promises that he has made to reestablish Israel, to gather them from afar, to gather them from everywhere he has scattered them, those promises are still good because they're based on the ever-living nature of the God who actually is, and he is the very God who accomplished things in history. I have aroused, says verse 25, one from the north, and he has come. That already occurred. From the rising of the sun, he will call on my name. That is really interesting language because we've already read, especially the last couple of months, as we've been reading from the Chronicles and from Isaiah, that the king of Assyria mocked the God of Israel, mocked people who had put their faith in the God of Israel. He called on the name of the God of Israel, He admitted that the God of Israel existed. And yet, he would not bow to that God. From the rising of the sun, he will call on my name. And he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as a potter treads out clay. He is going to conquer other rulers of other nations the same way that a potter can just flatten the clay. If he's making something, he's building something, he doesn't like it. He can flatten the clay and start all over again. Or if he has already put it in the kiln, he can break it. He can shatter it. So God caused the king of Assyria to come upon rulers the way that you would come upon unsolid walls, even as a potter treads through the clay. Now, the question, the reason God brings that up the reason God said, look, this already happened in human history, is that God had declared that it was going to happen before it happened. And now it has happened. So in verse 26, he says, Who has declared this from the beginning? So that we might know. So that we might understand it. So that we might comprehend it. Which of you, you foreign gods, which of you declared what has already occurred before it occurred. Because I did. What did you do? Who declared from former times so that we might look back on it and say, hey, he's right. This is one of the reasons that I like prophecy so much. Not only because it gives us a glimpse of God's sovereign control of history and the future, But God himself keeps referring to his own ability to prophesy as evidence, as proof of who he is and of his existence. The very fact that he could say, this is going to happen, and then it does happen, ought to cause people to look at the word of God and say, wow, that's right. He said it and it happened occurrences that happen just in human history, like, for instance, the very fact that the Bible declares that impregnable Tyre and Sidon are going to fall, which was just unthinkable. A rock fortress on a rock island out into the sea, that was unthinkable, and then You can read about it in human history, how Alexander the Great and his armies built a causeway from the destruction of the cities on the shoreline there, and they marched themselves out and conquered Tyre, and Tyre did fall. Okay, that was God declaring in advance, this is going to happen. And then it happened, and God expects people to say, wow, he's right. Okay, I've added the word, wow. Isaiah does not say, Wow. Isaiah says this Who has declared this from the beginning so that we might know it, or from former times that we might say, He is right? Surely there was no one who declared it. Surely there was no one who proclaimed it. Surely. There was no one who heard your words. He is mocking the gods who cannot think, who cannot speak, because none of them actually declared what was going to happen. None of them proclaimed it because they can't talk. And because they can't talk, nobody heard it. So there was no declaration and there was no hearing of the declaration. These are inanimate objects that are being worshipped as if they were gods while the only true living God is putting them on trial, is explaining himself, declaring himself, and he expects people to believe him because he has given himself evidence. He has already told you what he's going to do and then he's done it and is doing it, and is going to do it. And sometimes these declarations that God is done with Israel sound to me like little more than a complete denial of God's ability to declare the future and then accomplish the future. It's a denial of God's word, and it's a denial of the very example that God uses in order to say, look, I did it. And then too much of the church world says, no, no, you didn't. No, you're not going to. No, you can't do that because that doesn't fit my system. God uses his ability to tell the future as evidence of who he is and what he is like and his utter existence. Verse 27. Formerly, beforehand, I said to Zion... Behold, here they are. And I said to Jerusalem, I will give a messenger of good news. That appears to be a contrast. When he says to Jerusalem, Here they are, that seems to be a reference to the enemy nations. Here come your enemies. They're going to take you into captivity. The Babylonian captivity is upcoming. The Assyrian captivity is in existence. And so God is going to declare, here they are. But he's also going to say to Jerusalem, but I'm going to send you a messenger of good news. That's why it's so important that in just a couple of verses at the beginning of what we call chapter 42, the Messiah of Israel is introduced that righteous branch of God, the one who is his servant in whom the soul of God delights. He is that messenger of good news. That's why we refer to his story as good news, the gospel. And God seems to be saying, it's true, you're going through difficulty. It's true, you're going to go through more difficulty. But I am your redeemer. I am going to establish you and I'm going to do it through your Messiah, the one who is going to solve your problem. You cannot be the solution to your problem, so I am sending you the solution, my son, the Messiah, the one who brings the good news, the messenger of good news. So finally, to wrap up this chapter, verse 28 and 29, God looks at the entire world, out to the coastlands, out to the islands. He looks at the people of the earth, and he looks at their gods. He looks at their objects of worship and says, but when I look, there is no one, and there is no counselor among them. There's no one to teach them. There's no one to instruct them in the ways of righteousness. There is no counselor among them. Who, if I ask, would give an answer? Because there's no one. There are no gods. This is God drawing the conclusion. He has put the whole world on trial. Okay, what do you got? Prove yourself. Prove your gods. Demonstrate that you're like me. Who is like the God of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel, despite the situation that Israel finds themselves in to this very day? Who is one that has this kind of control of human history, who can explain the past and predict the future and declare the future? Who is like that? I look, and there's no one. There is nobody they can consult except me. There is no counselor among them. Who, if I ask, can give an answer? Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. And their molten images are wind and emptiness. So God began with, let them come forward. Let the people gain strength. Let them speak. Gather them together for this judgment. Let's compare. Compare what you got to who I am. You build your gods. you worship your gods. But how are you like me? You aren't. You can't save anyone. You can't truly redeem anyone. You can't make anyone righteous, and because you're inanimate, you are not holy. And yet I am all of that. I control human history so that people will see it and say, the Holy One of Israel has done this. I declare things that are, things that have been, things that are going to be, so that people would honor, worship, fear, reverence, me. And if you give the worship and the reverence that is due to that singular God to any other creation of your own hands, you are an abomination before him. God calls the whole world to that judgment. God calls you to that judgment. God expects you to compare him to every other option that the world offers. And he is confident that the whole world has nothing compared to him. The solution to the world's problems cannot be the world. The solution to your problems cannot be you. Next week, we'll start reading about the solution that God provides. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.